It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest Today, we look at the latest tactical and strategic updates from the ground, explore Germany's efforts to wean itself off Russian gas, and ask the question, what's behind the success of the Ukrainian Air Force? This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 36, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Venetia Rainey, assistant foreign editor, and Louise Moon, our business features editor. I started by asking Dom Nichols for updates from the front line. Morning, David. Morning, everyone. Um, Sorry, afternoon. It's a good start. Um, Again, quiet across the the area of operations. The the Russian repositioning from Kiev l- looks to be taking place. Although, if it is, it's very slow. NATO Secretary General said uh, in the last hour that uh, they're not they're not doing much there. Um, R- Russia's trying to regroup, resupply, and reinforce its offensive in the Donbas region. He said um, they're not withdrawing but repositioning. I mean, we we, we knew that. Uh, he also said at the same time, Russia's maintaining its pressure on Kiev and other cities. As we've seen, Kiev uh, was shelled yesterday and has continued this morning. So that that uh, speaks of this this um, this continued offensive there through the means that, that Russia is more able to, which artillery and missile fire rather than any kind of ground manoeuvre. Um, elsewhere, though, very interesting situation developing to the east so russia had in the in the early hours of the war attacked sumi and kharkiv cities in the in the east um and all but surrounded them not not completely encircled the cities but um but went a long way a long way to doing that and since then it's sort of as as elsewhere it's bogged down into this stalled sort of flaccid um offensive from russia but um with this focus on the on the north and increasingly in the Donbass, uh, Ukrainian forces have pushed back significantly in the Kharkiv and Sumy areas. There's even reports of residents of Kharkiv returning to their homes. Um, and there does seem to be quite significant freedom of movement for the Ukrainian forces around there. The interesting thing about that is that, that if Ukraine is able to push back 
the the Russians possibly to the border, but significantly back from those those cities. It really does cut off any effort in the north um, from Kiev and, and Charnyiv and that and that area to anything in the Donbass and the south. And so this this repositioning that Russia says it's it's going to attempt to do will be much more difficult and take significantly longer if they've got to come out through Belarus, head east and south through Russia itself, and then try and get back into Ukraine from one of the other axes of advance. So that Ukrainian effort around Kharkiv and Sumy is possibly going to going to split the Russian forces from, a, from into a blob in the north and then another a blob into the east and increasingly linking up to the south. So that's a, that's a quite an interesting one to watch there. And I'll just uh, I'll just pause there. And just on the reaction inside Russia, we our front page um, this morning. I'm just looking at it now. Says Putin's aides are lying to him. Says the GCHQ chief. And there's mounting evidence that the Russian president is turning on his own spy chief and military advisers as the invasion falters. Um, Tom and Venetia, can you talk a little bit about this? What, what's happening in Russia? So this report came from the head of GCHQ, the Britain Signals Intelligence Agency, uh, Sir Jeremy Fleming. He gave a speech uh, in Canberra. He's in Australia at the moment. He gave a speech, uh, well, 10 p.m. London time last night, 8 a.m. Canberra time. Um, which chimed with with some of the reports that we're seeing coming out of of Russia. So um, GCHQ and and US intelligence uh, representatives have said that Putin feels he's been misled. Um, GCHQ said that he had misjudged the situation. Um, there are reports that that many people in the Russian security apparatus are afraid to tell him the truth. There's been a number of of very senior people um, sacked. So uh, Colonel General Sergei Poseda, who's the, the FSB, the head of the overseas effort, the FS, FSB, who, who, who should have done the intelligence for Ukraine. Um, he was sacked a couple of weeks ago, as was his deputy. Um, there does seem to be quite a lot of turmoil. Um, we're not entirely sure what's going on because you can't have it both ways. So on the one hand, there are reports saying that Putin doesn't know what's going on and he's being shielded from all the bad news. And on the other hand, we're hearing that he's sacking generals left, right and centre. Now, you know, if he was labouring under the, the belief that it was all going swimmingly, he wouldn't be sacking these people. So so the truth is, you know, as often somewhere in the middle. But I think we can take from it that um, it's not going brilliantly well for the um, the senior leadership of the security and intelligence apparatus in Russia. And and I think the message has got through to Putin that it's not going swimmingly well either in, in Ukraine. But uh, I'm sure Venetia will have, have a better view. Yeah, so, you know, I, th- I think another interesting development as well to mention in Ukraine that we've been seeing on the ground is the um, evacuation from Mariupol. They've tried to, the Ukrainian government has now tried to send in another major convoy of about 45 buses. 17 have left so far from Dnipro to Zaporizhia. Um, and the plan is for them to try and get into Mariupol tomorrow um, with the help of the Red Cross. We haven't really seen these humanitarian corridors out of Mariupol work so far. Um, so this is a really important development if it can be pulled off. There's been a sort of local ceasefire declared by Russia, um, which everyone is hoping will hold. There are about 170,000 people still trapped in the city. We've obviously been hearing horrific stories of those who've managed to make it out. And they've been making it out just by fleeing in their own cars um, off their own backs. So that's a really important development as well that we'll be watching on the ground in Ukraine today. 
And there's an incredibly interesting story from Belarus, Venetia, about the the railway resistance there, sabotaging the Russian war effort. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, this is a great story that our correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, has dug out. Belarusian opposition activists have been basically forming a railway resistance network. um, And people have been going out and trying to sabotage the railway lines um, by setting fire to signal boxes, um, you know, putting large logs on the sleepers and setting fire to those, um, anything that they can do to disrupt the railway network in Belarus. Um, and you might be wondering why Belarus, why is that important? Well, as Dom just mentioned, Belarus is a key part of how Russia is attacking Ukraine. It was where they launched the offensive on Kiev and also on Chernihiv in the northeast. Um, and it's where they continued to, it's a country that they continue to use to resupply their troops, which, as we've heard, have been very beleaguered in recent weeks. Um, so Russian, Russian, the Russian army not being able to get its trains with its weapons and other resupply kit to the front line in Ukraine has proved a real frustration. And we've, we know that it's been very frustrating for them because Belarus has cracked down very, very heavily on anyone involved in this. You know, we've heard reports of dozens of people being arrested. We've seen forced confession videos, a, a Belarusian favourite tactic. Um, and we've seen even whole towns being, you know, swept with police raids and nighttime knocks and people being arrested. So clearly this is having an effect. It's um, it's perhaps a small effort in the wider sort of wider war picture. But um, the Belarusian opposition government um, have, have been pushing for Belarusians to do whatever they can, whatever small acts of resistance they can. And I think this is a really wonderful example of taking the trying to derail the Russian war effort. Um, Don, would you like to add to that? Thanks, thanks, Venetia. I know we had a question a while ago asking about Belarus, so it might be interesting just to talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, although to be perfectly honest, how I'm going to follow derail the Russian effort through uh, r- railway sabotage, I just don't know. But, you can um, try, you can try. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, actually, I have got one in a moment. I will, I will, I will launch on you. But um, yeah, as Venetia said, Belarus hasn't yet, to our knowledge, put uh, ground combat forces into uh, Russia, but what they have done is they've acted as that as that firm base from which they they can launch their assaults. Um, and if we've learned anything over the last month, it's that you know logistics is you ain't going nowhere without logistics. So you need that firm base. Um, Belarus has has done that. Um, so to, so to not then be able to move around um, and to move your forces, so repositioning forces from from Kiev to, to to anywhere, just back to a, a an area where you can fix your kit or or rest and have a, have some downtime. Let alone move somewhere else and start an offensive again. If you can't actually move around, you're you're, you're totally snookered. So th- this is is it may sound very minor, but um, it could actually be quite pivotal. And it and it and it speaks to the the resistance resistance that we've seen over the last few years in in the uh, Belarusian society. Um, and uh, I mean, it it could it could well factor here if if um, Russia has used some of its best troops around Kiev, hoping for this lightning strike, then they need them back and they need to fix all the all the wagons that need to be sorted out. So so that could be quite quite significant. Um, just touching on as we as we did earlier on about the, these, this chaos and the the senior echelons of the of the Russian intelligence architecture, I mean, it is worth noting that that also today um, the French military intelligence chief has been sacked. So General Eric Vidal, he was sacked apparently for failing predict, to predict the um, 
the assault, the the invasion. He's only been in the job seven months, and he was told he he's been apparently allegedly sacked for inadequate briefings and um, uh, lack of lack of mastery of his subjects. Which meant, I mean, thank God these standards weren't around in the British Army when I was there. Is all all I can say. But it's it is very interesting that 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 the military intelligence head has gone. Um, they were saying that their assessment was that it would be hugely costly and um, possible, but hugely costly for Russia to do this assault. Um, that that actually has been borne out. So he might be a little bit of a scapegoat, um, possibly because the US and UK intelligence um, agencies, as we've mentioned a, a number of times, got this pretty accurate. Um, so maybe he's, a, he's an, um, an un... <laughs> A, a hapless scapegoat here. Um, it also looks pretty good for President Macron. He he did a bit of shuttle diplomacy in the weeks up to the war. He's tried a little bit since then, sort of Zoom video call diplomacy, if you like, with um, Putin. Not not really come to much. And there was a suggestion that that Mr Macron had had been made to look a little bit foolish by investing so much political capital. Um, and of course, he's got an election this year, so he's got to. It's got to do something. I'm not suggesting that the head of French intelligence has been sacrificed as part of Macron's uh, election bid, but um, it is all, all rather unhappy timing for many, many people in the intelligence architecture of some of these countries. Just to pick up on uh, talking about diplomacy and ambassadors, there was a curious story from Ukraine. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky has told Ukrainian ambassadors abroad to look for other work if they cannot drum up support or sanctions. Uh, Venetia, I know you wanted to speak about this a little bit. Yeah, I just think this is a great example. I mean, Zelensky, sort of man of the year at the moment, but he, you know, he he's not afraid to take on his his own people as well, and he's essentially said to all of his ambassadors. If you can't get us weapons or sanctions against Russia or restrictions against Russian businesses, then please look for other work. He is asking very clearly for concrete results. And, you know, he's he's named two ambassadors that have already been recalled from Georgia and Morocco, um, saying that they, they just hadn't done enough to persuade their host to either support Ukraine or punish Russia. That's what he's looking for. This is, for him, full-blown war effort. And if you're not pulling your part, then he's not interested in keeping you around, which I think is pretty extraordinary. If I could also add to that, that's also sending a message to countries all around the world. It's a little bit, there's a, there's a, an echo here of the George W. Bush's you're with us or against us line after 9-11. So Zelensky is saying to the international community, you, you can't be neutral on this. I mean, Morocco, one of the, one of the countries that, that, um, from which the ambassadors have been withdrawn. Um, there's thought that Morocco needs to try and play a, a fairly fairly straight line down the middle because of the pressure from Algeria next door and Algeria's links to Russia and, and so on. Um, all of which is entirely, entirely legitimate. But Zelensky is saying, well, I don't care. You know, this is a fight. This is, this is the time to choose. And um, it, yeah, it's not, it's not literally said with us or against us a la, a la Bush. Um, but uh, it's, it's pretty diplomatically close to it. It'd be very interesting to see if any other other countries around the world sort of unilaterally just come out and decide to make a stand without any any uh, sort of Ukraine, obvious Ukrainian pressure. But uh, we are approaching this sort of with us, with us or against us battle of values. We, we mentioned yesterday Sergei Lavrov's uh, visit to, to, to China and, and, and he's going to uh, India. I think he's in India today. Is, is that right? And the British Foreign Secretary has also arrived, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, we've talked about Russia and India yesterday. So if, you, if you're listening and um, you want to know about that, do listen to the podcast, uh, Ukraine the Latest, from yesterday. But could we talk a little bit about what the British will be telling, will be telling the Indians? 
Yeah, so they'll be they'll be telling the Indians that they need to figure out who they whose side they're on. Um, Liz Truss is there today, as you said, at the same time as Sergei Lavrov, which is quite awkward timing. And I wonder if there'll be any sort of backroom communications. Um, Liz Truss wants you know India to to make a clear declaration. It wants it to not get any further in bed with Russia than it already is, and to to make to make it clear to Russia what Russia wants is to do some kind of ruble exchange swap. And also to keep selling, um, also to keep selling weapons. So it's it's quite a fine tightrope for India to balance. India has been has tried to stay as neutral as it can, but has very close links with Russia, which is also obviously geographically very close. And um, we have seen also lots of disinformation on Indian social media. You know, the Indian audience has proved ripe for. Russia to sow lots of anti-Ukrainian messages and there's found to be quite a lot of sympathy towards those sorts of messages so it'll be a tricky one to work out and I'd be interested to see what if any results Liz Truss is able to get today. Just to add another area to this so Sergei Lavrov Russia's defense uh, sorry foreign minister um, in China earlier today um, speaking to a a delegation from Pakistan and just in the in the sort of chit chat before the main business he he just let this this little uh, line slip out he said that those who tried to make afghanistan the center of world politics are now trying to make ukraine replace afghanistan which is just you know g- great diplomats just softly spoken um little little jab there from um from lavrov and what he's saying to pakistan he's basically saying look you know the west failed in afghanistan they're gonna fail in ukraine conveniently sort of skipping over the fact that Russia didn't cover itself in glory in Afghanistan either. But he's also saying these guys, they, they piled into your backyard. They played politics. They, they treated you with disdain. Um, so don't don't support them over this war. You've got no friends there. So, I mean, as you'd expect from a from a seasoned diplomat taking every opportunity to um, to, to work the room and, and build up that um, that diplomatic block. Thanks, Tom. There's just a, a few more stories I think we should touch upon. Um, Venetia, a story came through that Russian soldiers are eating dogs rather than the ration packs they've been given. Um, it's quite an extraordinary headline. Could you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, this is another one for the Russian soldiers are incredibly poorly equipped file. Um, they basically have been given sort of, you know, ready meals to eat. They're like packs provided to the troops where they don't have to be refrigerated. They don't really have to be cooked often. They have very long use by dates. Um, but apparently Russian troops are so sick of them that they've been turning to animals. Um, there was This was a call that was intercepted between a serviceman and his family, and he is asked, are you eating okay? And the soldier replies, yeah, not too bad. We had um, Alabe, which is a, brief, a breed of sheepdog yesterday. We just really wanted some meat. Um, so it shows that they are becoming increasingly desperate for, for good food, good rations. We had previously heard that some of the rations had expired, some by 2015. So this is not an army that's being incredibly well, well supplied, we can say. Thanks, Venetia. Um, Dom, you've written a, a very interesting piece. Uh, we've talked about the, the N-Law, the, the British-Swedish uh, anti-tank um, gun previously, but you've written a piece on the Telegraph website, and I'd encourage everybody listening to go, to go read it there, about how it's achieved cult status in Ukraine. Um, would you talk a little bit about that? And um, What do you mean by cult status? What's happening? Well, I mean, it's, it's a, bit, a bit flippant, forgive me, because it's a very serious subject, but the, the N-Law, which is a next-generation light anti-tank weapon, the Anglo-Swedish... Uh, shoulder-launched uh, weapon weighs about 12 kilos, so you can can hump a few of these around. They're they're, they're working exceptionally well, and they're very popular with the troops. They they are complementing their U.S. cousins, the Javelin, um, which we we must not forget. So thousands of Javelins, are equally um, equally deadly, 
proving equally deadly um, there in the country as well. And and it's just showing Ukraine's are, are adapting their tactics into these small hunting packs going around, um, nibbling off the edges of the logistic columns, of, as we've seen. And then when the tanks and the armoured vehicles at the front that are starved of fuel from those logistic columns, they're just they're just sitting sitting ducks waiting to be hit. But on the on the website, we explain how these things work, why they're so um, they're so hard to spot. Basically, I mean, there's there's footage there of a column of tanks coming down a main a main road, uh, which is not surrounded by buildings and thick forests. I mean, it's quite an open uh, landscape, and they get hit from the side from about twenty meters, because um, you can just you can you can fire these things from anything from standing up to to lying and kneeling down. In which case, a good soldier is going to be well, very well camouflaged. Um, they are far, far and forget, or far, far and leg it, basically, because um, as soon as you hit the first vehicle, you'd, you'd expect the others to then, you know, try and try and do something about you. So you just fire it, drop the tube, and run, run for your life, literally. Um, but they're proving very, very effective. Now they cost about the end laws cost about twenty thousand pounds a piece. So the, the, it's the uh, it's the line of supply. It's can they can they be produced quick enough? Can they get into into the country quickly enough? Uh, Britain's Defence Secretary Ben Wallace mentioned um, last week that that supplies were running low, as as you'd expect. Um, so it's, it's going to come down to to that sort of industrial base, uh, that base capacity. But the the thing is that the, as good as Enlaw and Javelin and some of the others uh, anti tank missiles are, and they are, don't, there's no doubt about it. Um, you don't need them for every type of weapon for every every vehicle. So a lot of soft skin vehicles um, and other 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 thinly armoured vehicles, um, heavy machine gun will do just as well. An RPG, rocket propelled grenade, will do just as well. And you have to. There's a distinction between what the military call an M kill and a K kill. An M kill is a mobility kill. So if you've got a tank coming at you, if you blow the tracks off or have a go at the engine bay. Um, such that it can't move. The gun might be able to work, so it's still a deadly, deadly piece of kit. But you know, it's fairly limited because the gun will fire uh, two thousand meters or so in any direction. But um, that's, that's limited by ground and buildings and what have you. Uh, so an M, an M kill is is very, very capable. A K kill, which I don't think the K stands for anything but kill, but kill kill sounded a bit naff. K kill when the, the entire tank is destroyed. That that obviously wipes out completely and and kills the crew as well who who can then not um go and use another vehicle so there's m kills and k kills and there's different types of weapon um from heavy machine gun upwards that can have an effect on all on, on these vehicles and can stop soft skin vehicles which are generally what the logistics are carried in they're not going to be in very very heavily armored vehicles um the artillery pieces aren't particularly well armored uh so you can um so they can be extensively damaged short of using an end law and a javelin um so this this is a fascinating area to see um how the tactics are adapting to urban and rural environments but also just shows the vulnerability of all these these different types of vehicles and how the how the terrain makes a real difference there's there's actually footage from um i think mariupol of of uh well, I've seen both sides. It's Ukrainian firing at a Russian tank. I've also seen it's it's Russians who who, who managed to get an end law firing at a Ukrainian tank. Either way, it's got a twenty meter arming distance. It won't. The weapon has a soft launch mechanism, so it doesn't doesn't blow blow the firer away if he's in a um, in an enclosed space. He or she in an enclosed space. So the thing pops out the tube, and after a few meters, the the main rocket booster then blasted up to speed. 
So it takes 20 meters or so before the weapon will arm itself. And there's footage from Mariupol, allegedly from Mariupol, showing uh, an end law engaging a tank uh, too close. So it, it's just it, it just hits it, hits the tank, physically hits the tank and doesn't doesn't do anything. It doesn't doesn't explode because it's um, it's not uh, not yet armed itself. So, you know, they're fairly simple to operate, but you've got to, there are a few a few caveats that they, they, they have to bear in mind. Um, but overall, I mean, these things are proving absolutely deadly and very quick to train crews up on. So, yeah, I'd encourage you to go and have, have a look at the website. There's there's lots of video and footage there showing how these things work in different um, in different environments. So just to repeat, um, you can read Dominic Nichols's piece on the Telegraph website. So do search for that and do read that. I realise, Dom and Venetia, you, you have to head off to a briefing now. But thank you very, very, very much for your, for your input. It's hugely, hugely appreciated. Um, any Any final words? The only final one for me, I promise to come back to Venetia's railway uh, wars. Um, have a look at um, H. Sutton's uh, Twitter feed. He, he runs the Covert Shores, Covert Shores uh, uh, Twitter feed. He's done one of those. He's done a brilliant how it started, how it's going uh, pictures of the of a Russian oligarch's yacht, the mega yacht Nord. Um, how how it started. There's a beautiful picture of the French Riviera. Riviera and, and how it's going. Apparently, the yacht turned up this morning in Vladivostok. And um, looking at those industrial containers and pretty bleak tower blocks, Vladivostok ain't no Riviera, I can tell you. Hi, David here. Before we speak to Louise Moon about the impact of the war on the world economy, and in particular, Germany and Russia, I just want to recommend our Dispatches newsletter to all of our listeners. If you want to stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, you can sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. The Ukraine conflict has had a dramatic and profound impact on the world's economy, so it was great to get Louise Moon, The Telegraph's business features editor, back in the studio. We spoke about German efforts to wean the country off Russian oil and the impacts of sanctions on ordinary Russians. But I started by asking Louise about the latest economic news, and in particular, new British sanctions. Hi, David. Um, yeah, so new at the moment uh, today is that the government has made 14 additions to its sanctions list. Um, some quite interesting figures on there. So overall, at the moment, the government sanctioned about 1,000 individual individuals and businesses and then today's additions include kind of top media and some defense figures so interestingly the managing director of rt um so that's formerly russia today that's uh, russia's state-controlled tv network he was sanctioned um as well as sputniks which is also a news a- agencies their editor-in-chief so they're kind of targeting obviously they've gone for oligarchs before um and and key businesses and now it seems they're targeting more of a range of people um, to really to really make those impacts known. Um, another key figure, I'm not sure if you mentioned earlier, but um, someone who's been dubbed the butcher of Maripol. So he's Russia's the chief of Russia's National Defense Command and Control Center. And the reason he's got that nickname is because he's he's said to be responsible for the planning and the execution um, of the obviously awful bombardment on Maripol. So he's also included in those sanctions. Um, so it really just shows kind of. Um, just widening measures by by the government really to, to hit Russia economically as much as possible. Um, they also announced again. I'm not sure if you said this earlier, but they've also announced new legal powers to ban maintenance on aircraft and ships that belong to sanctioned oligarchs or businesses. Um, again, just really hitting home on things owned by these people. And this obviously comes. I'm sure everyone's read earlier this week um, that 
Grant Shapps seized the first yacht on British waters in Canary Wharf. And that was worth an estimated 38 million. So it's basically kind of um, excelling the crackdown from the UK side. Um, aside from sanctions, uh, on, in, in, in terms of Russia's economy, their stock market um, obviously opened last week. Um, but there's been further lifting of some trading restrictions to stave off a market collapse. Um, stocks have moved higher. So at the moment, I think they're up around 6%. Uh, that's the Moscow exchange is up around 6%. And that's the highest since the war began. And energy giant Gazprom is one of their top risers. So easing restrictions have included hours have extended. They were a shortened four hours of trading and now they're back to regular hours. So that's from 9.50 to 6.50 p.m. Um, but the ban on foreign investors is still in place. So this just shows Russia gradually opening its economy. Um, obviously, as everyone knows, the stock market um, was closed for a month when the war began because there were worries, obviously, that it was collapsed as everyone pulled out. Um, so it's gradually getting back to normal. Um, in terms of their currency, the ruble is interestingly also recouping some losses. So it's extended a recovery to levels before the war. Um, it is down slightly today, but it has been trading higher for five straight days. Um, so it's now down slightly. It's at around 81 against the US dollar. Um, this is just interesting that, I mean, this it, it absolutely plummeted at the beginning of the war. And now it seems to be recouping. Um, and it's that's been driven, experts are saying that that's being driven in part by export focused companies, which are obliged to sell foreign currency, while activity from importers is, is low. So that's potentially one of the reasons why it's rising. So that's the, the main developments at the moment. Thanks, Louise. That was incredibly comprehensive. Can we talk a little bit about Germany and Russia? Um, Germany is trying to phase out Russian uh, gas supplies. And, and again, if you're listening, there are several pieces on this in today's Telegraph and on our website. Um, could you give us just some background and tell us, tell us what's happening in this, in this, in this economic uh, tiff between Germany and, and Russia? Yeah, of course. So, so it is Germany and Russia, but it's also Europe and Russia. And it's all based around energy. And essentially, it's kind of been dubbed, I don't know if this is, is too uh, jovial, jovial a phrase, but kind of been dubbed a, a game of poker between the two. So obviously, as everyone knows, Europe, um, particularly Germany, but the whole of Europe is very dependent on Russian gas. And they're trying to wean that off and find other sources of energy. But at the same time, Russia is also very dependent on Europe. The majority of its pipes flow in the direction of Europe. And as much as they do supply elsewhere, they are also in some sense reliant as well. So what's happening, obviously this has been ongoing since the war began. There's been worries that uh, Putin might cut off supplies, that Europe might um, stop stop buying Russian supplies as well. So there's, there's been that tiff ongoing. But the most recent development is... Essentially, um, Putin has set a deadline of today for what he dubbed unfriendly nations. So that included the US, the UK, Germany. Um, he wanted those unfriendly nations to pay for their imports in rubles. And, and he set the deadline of today for Russia's central bank and Gazprom to put that into practice. So there were obviously worries over that. The reason, the reason there were worries is, um, as I said, Europe was dependent. But why paying in rubles why they were fearful of paying in rubles is because they didn't want to prop, prop up um, Russia's currency. It kind of doesn't really tie in, obviously, with with uh, their stance on sanctions. And so they didn't want to be aiding 
inadvertently aiding anything that Putin was doing by propping up his currency. So he set that deadline of today. Um, Germany had come out against that and said that they didn't want to, and they wanted to continue buying their gas in euros. Um, and so today's development is that Putin has actually backed down on that demand. So he has told Germany and Italy so far um, that we know of, so he's told those those two countries, that European buyers can continue to pay in euros and then he will, as they have been doing until now, and then he will convert that into rubles. So that has obviously eased fears um, that Moscow would cut off supplies to Europe. Um, Russian media had been reporting that Gazprom, the state-owned energy giant, was looking at ways to cut off flows to Europe. Um, and, And there were massive fears. I mean, earlier this week, Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before, Germany had triggered its first early warning phase of an emergency gas plan. Um, So if implemented and if followed through and and the three stages were hit, ultimately that would lead to gas rationing from the German state. Um, And obviously energy prices are rocketing. So um, it's, it's, I mean, it's still an ongoing kind of game of poker, as I said, between Russia and Europe. But Putin backing down on his demand has eased fears and it signals potentially that he won't cut off um, gas. And so so it could seem that Germany has the upper hand, um, but obviously there are many factors uh, feeding into this. Um, Russia, as I said earlier, so Russia is very dependent on Europe so um, for business, for buying its gas. But it is at the same time looking elsewhere, which could signal... It's looking to prop up its business as Europe is weaning itself off. So I think it was today it's reportedly selling oil to India at discounts of as much as $35 a barrel on pre-war prices, um, as obviously it's hard to find buyers amid sanctions. And it does have some business as well um, in China. So earlier this week, Chinese state-owned giant Sinopec, state-owned oil giant, said it would continue to buy crude oil and gas from Russia. Um, And last month in February... Um, I think it was April last month in February, it agreed also to a 30 year contract to supply gas to China in a new pipeline. So, I mean, there are lots of factors at play and lots going on. But the the latest development, as I said, is Russia, um, Putin and Russia backing down on, on that demand, which has at the moment eased fears, which is great for Europe in one sense. Thank you very much, Louise. I'm um, just talking about oil. There's also a move, a potential move from the US of Biden releasing releasing oil as well. Could you Tell us a little bit about that. What, what, what's, happening, what's happening there over the Atlantic? Yes, yeah, so there were reports, reports yesterday that Biden is meant to be close to announcing another big release of oil from America's emergency releases. Um, and that is obviously in an effort to, to increase supply and cool down prices. An announcement is expected later today from Biden. I think it's about 5.30 UK time. Um, and if he did do this, which it seems he expected, to, to do. It would be his third release since November, and it's thought to be the largest. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is an effort to to help out global supplies, and oil markets have reacted. Um, oil, the oil price has fallen on that news. So it's, it's um, essentially welcomed. So if he, does, if he does release that, then that would be good for both prices and supply, essentially. You mentioned earlier, you, you were talking about how the, the Russian economy, after, after crashing so hard after the beginning of the conflict, is recovering a little bit. Um, could we talk a little bit about what this means for, for Russians themselves? Um, I, know, I know there's a few pieces on the website today, so I thought that'd be interesting. It's one, it's one thing talking about stocks and shares going up and down and, and the numbers being red and black. But what does it mean for young Russians and, and, and people who want to shop in, in the Federation? 
Yes, we had a really interesting piece yesterday and we spoke to quite a number of young Russians. It's, it's on the, the business section um, to read. It was a long, a long feature speaking to young Russians about essentially how their life is changing. Because as you say, you can talk about stock markets, but this is hitting people's everyday lives. So obviously it's been, it's been widely reported that, you know, a host of companies are, pull, are pulling out of Russia from IKEA to, to big luxury brands. Um, and so there's kind of two factors at play. There's, there's one that the brands, there's a lack of access to these brands, but two, that because of all the, the, because of the overall impact on Russia's economy, prices are also going up and living standards are going down because um, wages, essentially Russia seems to be set for a recession, for a two-year recession is being predicted. And within that, wages are set to go down. So prices going up, wages going down, overall that creates um, worse off living standards. So not only are young Russians kind of not having access to these goods that they've grown up with, that they've become used to, Western goods, you know, as I say, Ikea, McDonald's, Nespresso was was one of the companies that the uh, lady we spoke to um, had mentioned. They're also becoming unaffordable. So that same lady said, you know, um, she has an Apple phone and Apple is, has now stopped selling any more products. So the ones that are, that, are, that are still available, you know, stock that was still in Russia, that is becoming unaffordable. So she was saying, you know, if my phone breaks, I can't afford anything new. So there's one thing not being able to afford things. Um, another aspect is travel. Um, obviously, there's been there's been sanctions on flights both from Russia and from from Europe and the US. So flights going in and out. So that's being curtailed as well. Um, and there was there was interestingly another another lady that we spoke to that she was saying, you know, that's not just affecting holidays. That was that's affecting her career prospects because she'd always dreamed of going abroad to Europe and teaching Russian, and that's what she really wanted to do. But she was saying now that's looking unlikely in the near future and so that's also affecting her career prospects um and on career prospects i mean as i said the the economy is set to, set to well it is it it is being hugely impacted by these sanctions and wages set to go down so it's it's affecting young young russians career prospects as well and just just to finish i think i'd like to ask um what should we be looking for what do we expect to see in the next few days maybe over the weekend i mean you said the germany russia um interaction is, is like a game of poker so what, what are the next moves i mean i think yeah as you say we just just have to look at at the energy market obviously biden's set to announce hopefully this release of oil later today so that's one key thing and then i mean more than just over the weekend but over the next month few months of uh, as we have been speaking about as i spoke about on this with you on this podcast before of of um where western countries are going to go with their energy supplies so whether that's ramping up as we spoke about in the uk solar farms or turning back to coal or to fracking or leaning more in the us i think that development it has been ongoing but it will still be a key thing to watch going forward as well Hi, this is Louise Moon, the Business Features Editor at The Telegraph. So since we recorded earlier, there's actually been some developments on the story. So this afternoon, Putin has kind of, it seems, gone back on his promise and threatened to instead cut off energy supplies to Europe tomorrow unless European buyers of gas um, promise that they will pay in rubles. Um, So this proposal, under his proposal, um, this would mean that 
buyers of gas would have to would have to set up two accounts with Gazprom, the Russian state-owned energy giant. So one would be in dollars and one would be in rubles. Um, what is unclear is how this would exactly work and if this would even benefit the Russian economy. Um, and also what is unclear is European countries' reaction. So at the moment, both Germany and France seem to be resisting. Um, but it's not. we're not sure if they are saying no to the proposal overall or no to paying in rubles. So obviously this is a developing and ongoing story and it's we're not sure how it's going to pan out. Um, so at the moment it's still quite a poker game between Europe and Russia on energy supplies. And if you want the latest on the story, then you can go to the Telegraph Business Section's live blog, which will have all the updates. Yesterday, I spoke to the Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, James Rothwell, about the performance of Ukraine's air force. James spent many weeks out in Ukraine and witnessed jet planes from both sides racing over the battlefield. So, James, you've been in Ukraine and you've been writing and thinking uh, quite a bit about the Ukrainian Air Force. Um, could you give us a sense about the, the, the battle for air supremacy in, in the past month? What's actually happened? Well, the initial expectation from US defence officials was that Russia would deploy most of its air force and very quickly take control of the skies by destroying Ukrainian air defences and obviously shooting down their fighter jets as well. But to the surprise of everyone, that just hasn't happened. That's partly because the Russian Air Force hasn't been deployed in full, and it may yet still be. That's something that could happen later on. But it's also because the Ukrainians seem to have done an extraordinarily good job, uh, not just at shooting down Russian jets on, on sorties, but according to the Ukrainian fighters themselves, actually deterring Russian pilots from wanting to take off in the first place because they're so concerned about getting shot down, or at least that's according to an interview with a Ukrainian pilot, which was published in a magazine called Coffee or Die uh, recently. And it's one of several interviews which are circulating now with Ukrainian pilots where they talk about these very daring, very dangerous air missions where they are shooting down, according to the Ukrainian military's estimates, as many as 100 uh, Russian jets. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Why have they been so successful? Can you give us a sense of what their tactics are? Basically, a question of... There seems to be two factors to this. One is morale and risk appetite. So when these pilots are being interviewed, they talked about how... There was an interview with a pilot at CNN, for example. He talked about his very strong personal motivation to defend the country, defend the family, their rage at Vladimir Putin for an unprovoked invasion... I think that's really increased their motivation in taking risks. And it seems that being willing to take more risks on the other side is why some of these missions are proving successful. Some of these pilots have talked about flying very fast and very low uh, in order to get as close as possible to the target as they can before firing. So that's probably one major factor. And then on the Russian side, we can only speculate because that side of things is obviously very opaque now. But we do know from reports on the ground that the Russian army in general seems to have quite a big morale issue, at least in parts. Uh, Some Russian soldiers don't really seem to have understood why exactly they were sent into Ukraine or they were only sent into Ukraine at the very last minute. We don't know whether that morale problem extends to Russia's air force, but it is a possibility. And it's it's not just um, planes in the air, is it? It's also the air defence systems and the drones as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? How have they helped and what's their role in the conflict? Well, what's been crucial for the Ukrainians so far is to basically deny Russia control of the skies because as soon as Russia gets into that situation, it can basically decimate the Ukrainian air defences and then it can start picking targets at will 
and the, the Russians in that situation would not need to worry about their jet being shot down or, or what sort of attack they were trying to do. So that is why the Ukrainians are relying not just on these very brave fighter pilots, but they've also got, as you said, a sort of mixture of the old and the new. They've got the old Soviet-style air defense missile systems, but they've also got these drones which are increasingly being deployed to try and intercept threats as well. And the overall goal here is to basically try and make sure that for as long as possible, Russia doesn't take control of the skies. There is a big caveat to that, though, which is that, as I said earlier, the full Russian Air Force doesn't seem to have been deployed yet. It's not immediately clear why. It might just be because of the, the fog of war that we simply don't know what Russia's actual intentions are. But there is a danger, I think, that in the future, if the Russian Air Force were to be deployed in full, then things could get very nasty indeed, despite the very, very fierce resistance of the Ukrainian Air Force. And it's important to say as well that the Ukrainian Air Force, for, for all its performance, is still losing planes and, and pilots. Do we know how long they can hold out at current rate? Well, I think the main clue that they need more support is that they are increasingly talking about the need to get extra hardware and extra equipment from their Western allies. And as you'll remember, there was that huge row a couple of weeks ago about the West possibly sending uh, fighter jets over to Ukraine in order to bolster their supplies. That sort of fizzled out, essentially, due to a sort of internal row uh, among European Union members. It also doesn't look like it's going to be on the cards in the immediate future. So potentially some issues ahead, yes, for the Ukrainian Air Force. Very, very early on in this conflict, there was a, a viral story about a, a Ukrainian fighter ace uh, that people dubbed the Ghost of Kiev. Um, it sort of disappeared from the radar a little bit. Could you throw any light on that? Did we ever find out whether it was completely falsified or was it based on something real? Um, would you like to speak to that? I think what was happening fundamentally was that various Ukrainian fighter jets were shooting down Russians and all of those military successes were combined into one mythical plane. That's sort of my understanding of what the ghost of Kiev actually is. I don't think the thing has been completely falsified. I think that it's simply an attempt to weave a narrative out of early uh, successes by the Ukrainian military, which provides quite a big morale boost for their forces on the ground. And also in those very early days of the war in Kiev, you would see quite frequently Ukrainian fighter jets in the distance. So perhaps this thing sort of built up organically where people are out on the streets and they see a Ukrainian fighter jet in the air and they go, oh, I wonder if that's the ghost of Kiev out on another sortie. And it sort of builds from there. That would be my theory. But we, we don't really know. I, I have a feeling that when the history books are written about this, that someone may get the definitive account of whether there really was one fighter pilot doing this all by himself but for the time being it's it's a little bit hazy so just to sum up your thoughts um could you give us yeah your, your thoughts on what the ukrainian air force has, has done and what issues lie for it uh, in the near future so what it's done so far is it's performed much better than expected according to u.s estimates in terms of intercepting threats from the air with Russia, but also making sure those air defences are proving to be a proper deterrent for the Russian Air Force. In the future, what the Ukrainian Air Force is saying, according to the interviews they've given, is that they need more hardware uh, and more equipment. And there is also this uh, lingering desire, I think, to try and get hold of more fighter jets that could replenish uh, those which may have been lost uh, in the early stages of the war. And the big thing to watch in terms of the near future is that the full Russian Air Force hasn't been sent in yet. Uh, but if it does get sent in, then the situation could 
changed significantly. Finally, you, I know you had some thoughts about the Russian withdrawal around Kyiv and its implications. Um, what are they? Well, I think that the precedent with this war has been that the Russians will say one thing and then do the opposite. You know, so they said that they weren't invading, and then obviously they did. Quite recently, they said they were going to focus their military operations in the east, and then they bombed Lviv, the city in the west, uh, shortly afterwards. Uh, yesterday, they said that they would drastically reduce military activity in Kiev and Cherniv. Um, but then overnight, it turned out there was very heavy shelling in Kiev, and, and some of the worst shelling so far, apparently, in in Chernivtsi, the city in the north. So I think at the moment, it it does appear that the Russians are using statements in the peace negotiations as a means of um, dissembling, putting out disinformation. They're almost using the statements they issue in the peace negotiations as a weapon of war to confuse people. Um, and while that goes on, I think it's going to be very difficult for, for people to take anything that the Russian leadership says at face value. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful... Follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.